Hi, this is Patrick O'Leary, editor of Fleet Watch Truck Magazine. The time is 11.30 and the date is Friday, July the 9th. Guys, we've got an incredibly serious situation at Moy River. At last count, there were eight trucks burning. This is an urgent call and a very serious call to get your trucks off for entry. Do not go near Moy River. I remember we were kind of a little bit on the back foot. We didn't really listen to any of the rumours that had been going around. We had heard talk of certain things happening, but I mean, to the exact extent, we didn't really realise. I'm on scene, I'm on scene. What the customer's talk? Being where we are geographically, we have a logistical artery here at this Moira toll road, which I think was very strategically pinpointed, of course, as we all have come to realise. We've become quite naturalised to the fact that one or two trucks might be bombed on a weekend. On the Friday evening when it all started, it ended up being upwards of 20 vehicles in the one evening that were bombed. Yeah, I've just spoken to officials, they're saying 19 trucks have been burnt here at the toll plaza, a further six on the N3 by supporters who are throwing their weight behind former President Jacob Zuma. Follow the ley lines of strife and you're bound to end up at Moy River a town with a population of 20,000 or so people. But more importantly, a truck stop and toll plaza that's the busiest in the country, processing thousands of long haulers each week. It marks roughly the 140-kilometer point from Durban to Johannesburg along the N3 artery. If the N3 is South Africa's spinal column, Moy River is its chronic lower back pain. And as local business management consultant Matt Nurse recounts, it's where the violence of July 2021 was sparked. It's very evident that Moira has slowly gone from the heyday where employment was fruitful and you know, trade was happening to a slow degradation of standards in all of these areas, which has invariably left us in the situation that we're in. And I think, unfortunately, with the catalyst that this unrest was, was really, again, down to opportunity and, and for those that are desperate, which is the saddest part. We've driven up the N3 from Peter Maritzburg, inland, to Moy River, to meet with a group of local business owners who led what effectively became a small civilian army over five days of the uprising, protecting their town from looters and arsonists, or, to put it another way, from their neighbours. Unwittingly, they became the lone protectors of a major logistics hub, one that is hit time and time again by a range of mafia players trying to assert their control of the N3 highway. We think of the highway as the country and perhaps the planet in miniature. There is the formal highway, the one that you can see with goods and commodities and holidaymakers travelling from Johannesburg to Durban and back again. Then there is the informal highway, a dark hub for heroin and guns and other illicit goods, all of it running up from Durban's poorly policed port into the wilds of Johannesburg. Who controls this highway? Well, exactly. We've reached the seventh and final point on the continuum, where organized criminality devolves into an all-out gang war, and where democracy takes a selfie with whichever Russian oligarch comes to sunbathe at his vast Cape Town mansion. For the residents of Moy River, back in July 2021, the speed at which their town was overrun by forces which seemed organized was a wake-up call. Monday morning came. We realized that it was a lot more serious than we had thought. The question was then, is there anything that we can do to stop the carnage? Daily Maverick presents The Highwaymen, a limited podcast series written and directed by Richard Poplack and Diana Neal and produced with support from the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. 
The content may not necessarily reflect the foundation's views or opinions. This is episode 8. Democracy is a funny thing. Moy River is, perhaps, best known as the hometown of supermodel and Victoria's Secret angel Candace Swanepoel, who was recently pictured showing off her bikini bod on some unnamed beach in paradise. Her hometown does not have a bikini bod. It's a rough-edged former manufacturing and farming base. Many of its roads are now rutted, its corners occupied by listless bodies. It's clearly fallen on hard times. The Moy River, I would say, is in two parts. You've got the Moy River town, and then you've got Brunfield, which is the community across the road. And they the bulk of the workforce. That's Lincoln Waite, who owns the local spa supermarket. He's invited us to come and meet with him, his son-in-law, business consultant Matt Nurse, and his friend, Gordon Odell, who runs a business supplying local farmers. They're joined by Mzwandile Nkonko, the chairman of the local branch of the ANC, who runs his own security company that protects local businesses, including the spa, from the ANC, or more pointedly, from the ANC's unraveling. Uh, gents, thanks for meeting us today. It's a sweltering mid-February day, and we sit around a conference table on the second floor of the spa, overlooking the bustling store beneath us. We mainline bottles of water and catered sandwiches and talk for hours. Historically, the employment came out of a cheese factory, a milk factory. There was a big textile industry which has now dwindled. So the community unemployment obviously rose. And we basically rely on, on local farming at the moment as our main industry in, in this area. What I'm hearing is, is that this is almost a typical South African story. You have deindustrialization. Yes. You have labor unrest. Yes. You have a shrinking economic base. Yes. Uh, you have cons- consolidation in the agricultural sector. And so what's left effectively is services. Yes. Large, big brand stores selling, yeah. selling stuff to, to the yeah. community. And I mean, with that, obviously, the unemployment. So we rely heavily on grants and pension, basically. And I mean, I don't know how sustainable that is for how long we can survive. This, then, is the inevitable result of economic policies crafted two decades ago during the Mbeki era. One, a neoliberal embrace of austerity and open markets that supercharged the financial sector and little else. Two, a subsistence grant program that created a low-level consumer base. Three, cartels of apartheid-era capitalists who owned and controlled the formal economy. Four, union bosses co-opted by the forces of elite capture who in turn became gang lords, insisting, accept our terms or else. And five, the constant theft of municipal resources so that the town's infrastructure, like the country's, crumbled. South Africa no longer makes anything. It only mines commodities, offshores wealth and shops. As a result, Moy River is one of the planet's new post-employment dead zones. Outside of working at places like Spa, and a bit of farm work, there is, very simply, nothing to do here. Then there's the political history, which, as always, refuses to relinquish its hold on the present. Here's in Konko on what's unfolded here over the years. When the violence started in 1990 in Moi River, there were two factions. There was IFP, there was ANC. So that's how it all started. 
that's how the demise of the factory. Moira Textiles started, you know, the fights, the violence and everything. Eventually, people from Moira could not go to Moira Textiles because of IFP guys, because they were heavily armed, as said by the police in that time. Okay. So in other words, there is a history of political violence here in Moira. Not definitely. That definitely. goes back to the, the 1990s, around about that time, yes. Right. There's one more factor that comes into play here, and that's South Africa's rampant, unrelenting, politically endorsed anti-African xenophobia. The right-wing populism endorsed by the ANC and others intent on scapegoating African migrants. A spate of violent attacks have rocked the road freight industry recently. Scores of trucks have been torched or vandalized while the attacks are fueling tensions between South Africans and foreign truck drivers. We spoke to a Zimbabwean driver called Forward, who was on the road when the hashtag shutdown KZN uprising began. For safety's sake, he would only give us his first name. KZN, yeah, it's another country. The drive truck here in South Africa, in three, it's a very risky job because when you're driving truck, you meet a lot of things in the road, like people who want to hijack you, like people who are saying about foreigners, they must come out from our job. When you're driving, you mustn't stop anyway. You have to stop on a safe place. And sometimes don't show yourself you're a foreigner. That's to try to protect yourself. It's a very difficult thing. The campaign against foreign national drivers is directed, at least in part, by a hyper-nationalist association called the All Truck Drivers Foundation. Like many of the so-called business forums that have emerged across sectors in recent years, these are effectively racketeering outfits who try to insert themselves into and violently disrupt industries already saturated by established players. South African truck drivers heeded a nationwide call today to stop trucks from operating in protest against the employment of foreign drivers. Group calling itself De La Gokbona continues to terrorise workers at different construction sites, uh, demanding government contracts. A forum of uh, businessmen in KwaZulu-Natal has pledged its support for former President Jacob Zuma ahead of his court battles. The radical economic transformation champion says it respects the rule of law. These forums are an attempt, made very much in step with factions of the ANC, to gangsterize the economy. At every point along the supply chain, there is now someone with an AK-47 waiting to claim what the Russians call blat, favors. Songezo Zibi, former editor of Business Day and founder of the think tank Ravonia Circle, is pretty forthright on this point. In the mining sector, you've got these business forums who are affiliated to different parts of the party or elements in the party who demand a slice of contracts in the mining sector, in the construction sector. You already had the trucks down the N3 being stopped and, and burnt and, and that sort of thing. And so these criminal elements are embedded. They now one and the same with the ANC. So what you have is a gang war. What you have is a gang war, and that gang war, because it is in the political sphere, needs mass support. And that is how you end up with an insurrection, as it were. Because, let's be honest, the person who was formerly president of South Africa was running a criminal enterprise. This is tied to the degradation and destruction of the state-owned Transnet railway network, which has been gutted by organized corruption at the top and organized stripping of hardware at the bottom. This year, copper theft alone 
cost the South African economy more than 45 billion rand, according to a study by Genesis Analytics. Just in the month of April, Transnet was attacked 123 times and 40 kilometers of copper cable was stolen. One of the critical things, critical, we have unemployment, but now we've got this added cost of transport because our railway is defunct. And the reason the railway is defunct is because of crime. Simple. So it's more than that. So it's the fact that the SOE was hollowed out from the top. Yeah. Yes. No, exactly. no, sure, yeah. That sure. Is, but that's gangsterism on a, but a state of high level. Yeah, but you need to get the trucks off the road. You need to get the freight back onto the rail, which is far more economic. We all know that. So we, we need to address these things. In other words, this status quo works for a political elite and their factions who have helped turn South Africa into a gangster state. Nkonko explains how he saw this firsthand from inside the party at a local level in the lead-up to Zuma's incarceration and the resulting chaos. You know, way before that, I did call the meetings, the secretaries of all the wards. I did call them to my office. Let's discuss this thing before they get out of hand. Let's talk to people. Only one of them came. The rest did not come. I think it was a week before because the rumors were there. The writings were on the wall. We could have prevented it. Well, I mean, surely that speaks to some residual level of support for Jacob Zuma. No, definitely. The contestation within the ANC plays out in Moy River as a standard gangster movie turf battle. But in case we've forgotten, the ANC is a political party, which has won six successive parliamentary majorities and has a mandate to govern the country. This turf war rips the entire veneer of democratic governance to pieces. There is no possibility for what is traditionally called a representative democracy under these conditions. Here's our interview with Songhezo Zibi again. I found something very interesting that emerged from this deep dive that President Ramaphosa commissioned into the insurrection last July. This report was overseen by Professor Sandy Africa. Yeah. And the paragraph that I think has jumped out to everybody is that Contestation within the ANC has now become a national security threat. In other words, the factional battles happening within the ANC pose a threat to the durable nature of our democracy. That, to me, is astounding. That we've come to the point where the fights within the ANC are no longer fodder for front pages. They're actually a national security threat. Honestly, I'm stunned that it needed this task team to happen. It's ridiculous. I mean, our security agencies are either in the payroll of criminal elements, organized crime, tobacco cartels and the like. They either in service of the politicians. And for the rest, for those who try to do a professional job, they were kicked out and they continue to have serious obstacles. In which country on this planet does $50 million disappear from the headquarters of the National Security Agency? Just think about that. If that doesn't tell you that you've got a problem, then I don't know what does. ZB is referring to the fact that, under Zuma, the state security agency was used as a piggy bank for personal enrichment. At least $50 million was stolen, but also to build a network of spies and black helmets that zipped around in the shadows doing Zuma's bidding. Here's Intelligence Inspector General, Dr. Seto Mahmaru Dintwe. 
testifying about this at the Zondo Commission of Inquiry into state capture. Uh, what I can confirm is that money has been stolen and we are taking lots and lots of money. There is evidence in our position that some of those monies were used to finance a particular faction within the governing party. And in other jurisdictions, you find that these monies can be used also to finance terrorism. This is straight out of the Russian playbook. Zuma, a former intelligence operative, took full control of intelligence operations, much like Vladimir Putin and his men use the KGB and then the FSB as a money funnel. The meltdown, when it happens, happens quickly. This is Waite and his team on what unfolded when the South African Defence Force finally arrived in Moy River after they'd been defending their community alone, day and night, for days. Gordon was asking, when is the army coming? When is the army coming? And they said, no, they want to know if we've got an infrastructure for them. In other words, we must have a, yeah, accommodation and they need to know and da-da-da-da. So they're an hour away in Ladysmith. It took them four days to get here. They arrived on the fourth day because they were under resourced. Well, yeah, so they were here. Exactly what it is. But they had no food. They had nowhere to stay. We fed them. They had no water. They had no ablution facilities. It was an absolute shocker. It was an outbreak. Private citizens feeding and garrisoning the army. The same army that has ostensibly come to save them. Combine this with the policing crisis. You know, the fact that the SAPS barely showed up for the riots. And it's clear that Zuma's attempt to break down the state worked. In terms of drawing explicit links between South Africa and the gangster states of the former communist bloc, no one has done more work than government and public policy scholar Ivor Chipkin, who co-runs a think tank called the New South Institute. While he was at the Public Affairs Research Institute, or PARI, during the Zuma era, Chipkin and his colleagues released a massively controversial study called the Betrayal of the Promise Report. It posited that state capture was a political project. What we began to do, and I think we got the broad contours correct, was to understand that Jacob Zuma presidency as arising out of a profound disillusionment with the transition, a profound critique of the terms, of course, in form of lots of motives, self-interest, all sorts of things like that. But there was a political architecture to it, a critique of capitalism, a critique of the transition as a kind of an elite transition, which, which I think is a very much alive today, and it's very much alive today in the EFF and parts of the ANC, a very, very strong critique of democracy. And of the Constitution. And of the Constitution. So this is what we began to, to, to highlight, that this wasn't just a gang of thugs stealing money. Mm-hmm. There was a politics here, and that politics was a full frontal assault on the constitutional and democratic dispensation of South Africa. And we needed to understand that because it wasn't just enough to oppose this as, as, as a phenomenon of corruption. Tragic as it may seem, constitutional democracy hasn't worked for all South Africans, just as it hasn't worked for all Americans, or all Canadians, or all Danes. Moy River is merely one example, if a perfect one, of a country in which over 34% of the general population is officially unemployed, and nearly 60% of people between the ages of 18 and 25 cannot find work. And while it may seem outrageous to think of Jacob Zuma, two-term deputy president, two-term president, as one of democracy's losers, his populism was premised on being the biggest little guy. He was one of the people with a capital P, with no formal education, excluded from formal institutions, governed by formal white Western laws that have no application in a local context. He was a victim, a sap, a fall guy. Poor dude. 
But since the mid-zeros at least, neither Zuma nor his allies, or his rivals in the ANC, ever once looked at African history for political alternatives, nor were they interested in creating a new politics based on versions of local communalism. They were chauvinists, not Afrophiles. They had no learning, no curiosity, and no imagination. And they never once looked north of the Limpopo for answers. Instead, they focused their attentions elsewhere. The Soviet transition, the Eastern European transition, the breakup of Yugoslavia raises questions for South Africa which are so profound and which have, we don't think have been adequately posed in South Africa. Everything is highly integrated into these politically controlled networks through essentially gangsters so that you can't run a business. I mean, I was, we've just come back from Serbia and I was asking people, you know, they were saying the level of control goes down to who's got a popcorn stand, a vending stand in, in the streets of Belgrade. All of that is also integrated into those networks. This is a Putin model of, of, of how you run capitalism. You, you run capitalism politically. You allow businesses to operate. You allow some competition even, but it's all highly integrated in and through political networks. And I think that was very much the Zuma project. Unwinding this project has proved nearly impossible. Not least of all because the Ramaphosa regime hasn't displayed sufficient will. If anything, the project has advanced. The obsession has been the unity of the ANC. But there's nothing left of the ANC, not as a political entity. The ANC is dead. Long live the gangster state and its rules without rules. I'll never forget sitting in the bath the one evening. The first three days, no one slept. We hadn't shifted yet. Everyone was just here. And then we realized you had to get rest and go and sleep and come back. And um, I remember going, having a bath the one night, and I remember just sitting there with my head in my hands, just thinking, like, what have we come to? I mean, is this it? Yeah. Is it, this, it is this where it's going to end? Because yeah. at the time, there was no apparent light at the end of this, this tunnel. It's just sad that the, the police and army couldn't contain it, because then it wasn't for the civilians in KZN. No. It would be done. The defense of Moy River is a typical South African story. It is the tale of a band of mostly, if not entirely, white people defending the brands and commercial institutions of Main Street, like banks, fast food outlets, and supermarkets, against groups of desperately poor black people living on the edge, mere minutes from zones of wealth and privilege. The community of Moy River may have come out the other side of this unrest relatively peacefully, but in some places, racial animus did explode forming new wounds on top of old scars. To Phoenix, north of Durban, where racial tensions erupted during the unrest last week, at least 20 people were killed, most of them black. People in the area described gunshots, dead bodies and cars being torched. After the looting, there were attacks in homes and businesses and residents in Phoenix set up barricades at almost every intersection. Indian residents often pitted against their African neighbours living in the informal settlements of Bombay, Azwilish and Amati. Well, a social scientist says the tension in KwaZulu-Natal pose a threat to South Africa's very democracy and they stem from issues that have never been resolved post-apartheid. But if you think of this type of scenario as only a South African story, the widening divide between rich and poor, black and white, you're not paying attention. St. Louis has a police problem. In some of the wealthiest neighborhoods, sworn officers with the Metropolitan Police Department in uniform riding in SUVs marked police are being offered bonuses for investigating crimes and arresting criminals. But the offers aren't coming from the taxpayer-funded police department. 
They're coming from a private security company called the city's finest. That's just one of the details uncovered in an investigation published this week in ProPublica. As poverty rises and crime along with it, this is the counter-argument to more humane policing, less racial profiling, fewer extrajudicial executions of black men. This doesn't just happen in Brazil, South Africa, Colombia, and Donald Trump's so-called shithole countries. Social inequities make private policing and its manifest injustices inevitable. Here's Heinrich Böhmke on what it means in the long run. South Africa was a shining beacon of democracy, a shining beacon of constitutionalism, of racial reconciliation. Some of those things, of course, were based on chimeras. But there was also a redistributory politics that, to some extent, was possible. Because although it is true that the economic policies that are insisted upon by Western investors and financial institutions and so on have bracketed what could be done as far as social income transfers to people, especially poor people. Even within neoliberalism, even within the constraints of neoliberalism, there was one trillion rand that was stolen. And that, that one trillion rand could have been applied to building schools, could have been applied to more police, or whatever you, you, you want. So even within the constraints of neoliberalism, there was enough money to have made a hell of a change to the fortunes of a lot of people in our country. So not only is the failure of the South African project a cautionary tale to where well-meaning democracies end up once gangster practices start getting presidents in power who simply tear up the rule books, but it's also at another level a cautionary tale to say that even within the constraints of a neoliberal economy. They will steal even the 6% of GDP that is set aside for social investment. Even that will be stolen. Once again, it's left to the benevolence of men with guns, left up to their ability to make rational and humane decisions and how kind they choose to be to their neighbors. The first couple of days, we were transparent in the fact that we we all were armed and that we were organized. We all four actually had a meeting yeah. as to how it was that we were going to control this. The biggest thing for me was was trying to get youngsters who watch YouTube videos all the time mm. and they just want to shoot mm. and freaking let rip. And you, in a situation like that, I try to explain to them, we, we're not law enforcers. We're here just to protect what's ours and we're here to help the police. So we were in no way a, an attacking force. Everyone just banded together. And then obviously a, a big issue was nobody could get any food. Stores were closed. And people with young kids, they had no nappies. It was an absolute nightmare. And Lincoln came in here and he allowed people to come into the store. They didn't even have to pay. They could come back later and pay because no one had any money. So it was a big community thing. And for me... The whole episode actually brought a lot of people closer together, if you know what I mean. And, and, and I think a lot of people agree with me there. So within all the turmoil, a lot of good happened. Because good always comes out of bad. As Lincoln Waite and Mzwandile Nkonko put it, the poor of Moy River have been weaponized by people with other motives. This is what makes the town and the country in which it is a symbol a cautionary tale for the rest of the world. There's a perception that people outside of Moy River, 
they also use Moy River to plan the attacks, coordinated things, because they know when people are hungry, when people are unemployed, they're easy. They, if they see a burning truck or a hijacked truck, easily people go to the truck and take whatever they can take. But I strongly agree, it's organized from outside. Then they use Moy River to attack whatever we want to attack. What I think is very important, and this is what really, really scares me, is that this contestation is finding a political language, an expression as a different vision of democracy. I think it's a deeply authoritarian view. So what you're beginning to hear is a fundamental repudiation of South Africa's constitutional and democratic model in favour of something which they call popular democracy, a more you know, majoritarian view of democracy. Jacob used to lament that the constitutional dispensation had a fundamentally excluded black majority rule because now you know majority parties were subject to this constitution which kept overruling the ANC in its decisions. That's not what the ANC fought for, he says. So they may well be in practice destroying institutions, violating the constitutional principles, breaking and subverting democratic processes. But they're not doing it just because they're criminals. They're doing it because they feel righteous and justified doing that because they're acting with a sense of political courage. They're breaking this framework, which is deeply constraining and discriminatory against black South Africans generally, and Africans in particular. So there's a, there's a kind of righteousness in this violence. There's a righteousness in this, in this disruption and this breaking. That's an increasingly prevalent political impulse. It's what drove Brexit in the United Kingdom and MAGA in the United States, to name but two examples. Burn it all down, baby. In the gaps come community activists like Zayn and Muhammad, or the crew in Moy River, or the highwaymen and their legions. This is the thing about the highwaymen. They're a naturally occurring phenomenon. The vacuum must be filled. Meanwhile, in emergency situations here in South Africa and elsewhere in the developing world, where governments can barely deal with day-to-day governance, NGOs step in, replacing bureaucracy with benevolence. Dr. Mjia Suleiman, chairman and founder of Gift of the Givers. I never got up one morning to form Gift of the Givers. It never was something that was born in my own head. Gift of the Givers, a famous emergency services NGO, was founded by Suleiman as part of a spiritual calling back in the early 1990s, during the first Gulf War and the troubles in Bosnia. After those emergency interventions, Suleiman, who's South African, started setting up primary healthcare clinics in areas that the apartheid regime had deliberately ignored. Due to a never-ending stream of human and natural misery, the organization grew and grew and then grew some more. Somehow, nearly 30 years later, South Africa is still in need of constant emergency ass-wiping, and Suleiman has become a celebrity activist, lauded in the press as South Africa's de facto president. Does a functioning state require an NGO to provide services like water and sanitation before, during and after emergencies? Probably not. Dr. Suleiman, it strikes me that when you speak of your work in water, sanitation, healthcare, engineering, service delivery, Gift of the Givers functions as an alternative state. Well, that's what people tell us, you know, that the government should learn from you. Uh, You know, we don't like to be seen like that. There's a strong anti-government sentiment because of load shedding and the corruption. But remember, I come from a spiritual background. And from our spirituality, we are taught not to run people down. All the people in government are not bad. The systems are a problem, and they're not skilled in disaster. And I tell government all the time, and they laugh, you know, because I'm so blunt with them. I tell them, your disaster intervention is a disaster on its own. You know, it's a mess. You guys have got too many different people. 
Well, I, I think most modern technocracies are not built for disaster management because of the belief in austerity measures, the belief in funding as conservatively as possible. So what it strikes me, and, and I'm sure Diana as well, is that you step into the fold to deal with the fragility of these systems. And I'm not sure how sustainable that is. I mean, I find it quite scary. I have always one policy. Have we succeeded in everything that we've done? Yes. Have we been getting more support? Yes. Are our systems getting better? Yes. So we're not dependent on government. And my call has been since the, the time of the, the unrest, it's time for active citizenry. That the country as a whole has to take ownership of the country. Yes, it may not be the right thing to do, but under the circumstances when the ruling party is fighting itself, we can't let the country fall apart. And you'll see over the last year, the intervention and the support from corporates has become huge to fix water, to fix hospitals, to fix schools, and people themselves are fixing potholes, cutting the verges. Is it something that we should embrace? Is it something that, again, is, is, is maybe a little menacing in the fact that private organizations who are effectively unaccountable to South Africa, and I'm not suggesting that our politicians are accountable to us, but they are our representatives, are now filling in to do the role of our government. We have to bear one thing in mind, Richard, that the taxes of 7 million people can't have 60 million people. That's the reality. A health system that's collapsing, an education system that's collapsing, infrastructure is collapsing, roads that are not working. There was no planning, no management, no maintenance. All that together has come at a time to haunt us in 2022. But this is where corporates can play a big role. And they are playing a big role. And they said, how can we fix the country? Don't worry about the forms and about the tax certificate and our branding and this, that, and the other. The proof of the pudding is in eating. What economic crisis, what job losses, what COVID, what so much people, companies closing, we took in the biggest amount of money in our history. People are serious, corporates are serious about saving South Africa. Well, thank the ANC for one thing. It seems that corporates have finally woken up to the fact that the short-term benefits of collaborating with the state have met the realization that you cannot sell your products or services if the customer base is either broke or dead. That said, despite Gift of the Giver's undeniable good works, and despite all of the good intentions suddenly flooding in from major corporates, who for years have been engaging in transfer pricing, offshoring their wealth, and lobbying for lower taxes, there is something undeniably dystopian about a democracy relying on NGOs, or worse, insurance companies, to fix potholes or feed the elephants. Our seven-point program, from ideological contestation to divisions to factions to corruption or elite capture to state capture to organized crime to gang war, in South Africa, this process has run its course. This story reminds us, however, that while many people suffered and died for it in South Africa, democracy is not a static condition. Like a dream after waking, it is constantly receding, evaporating. By design, it creates the conditions of its own fragility. It demands inputs from good actors with no time or energy to provide them and has no means of refusing the entreaties of those seeking its destruction. Its pliancy is its strength and also its weakness. And that weakness is itself a strength. As the political analyst Astra Taylor notes, quote, I don't believe democracy exists. Indeed, it never has. Instead, the ideal of self-rule is exactly that, an ideal. 
a principle that always occupies a distant and retreating horizon, something we must continue to reach toward, yet failed to grasp. As we make our way back to Johannesburg, it is time to consider what comes next, how to reach with more intention and greater will. What then would constitute a rebirth? The Highwayman is written, produced and directed by Richard Poplack and Diana Neal with editing and sound design by Diana Neal, Bernard Kutzer and Tevya Turok-Shapiro. The original soundtrack is written by Bernard Kutzer and Janis van der Merwe. Our deputy editor is Gillian Green. Our project manager is Catherine Kutzer and our marketing lead is Sarah Kortman. Fact-checking and editorial oversight by Sasha Whale-Smith with transcriptions provided by Gloria Cooper. Additional voiceover by Ayanda Charlie. Our editor-in-chief is Branko Brickich. And our executive producer is Silly Gerlambus. Production of The Highwaymen was made possible with support from the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. The content may not necessarily reflect the foundation's views or opinions. For additional archive and music credits, please visit Daily Maverick. You can listen to The Highwaymen on IONO, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen to them on the Daily Maverick website. If you found this installment interesting, illuminating, or perhaps even a little life-changing, please consider leaving a review or sharing on social media.